Good stuff. So this morning what we're going to do is we're going to go through the first 11 verses here. And so as I was prepping, I'm like, man, I can't get through this chapter. Romans is just so much in there. And so let's, uh, let's check it out. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll read it here first this morning. So we're in uh, Romans 5. We're going to do verses 1 through 11. It says this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in, in, the ho- in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Lord, just thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the privilege it is to come um, and just spend this time in your word. And Lord, we, as we study your word, we don't want to make the mistake of the Pharisees that you pointed out. You said to them, you, you diligently search these scriptures because you think by them you possess life and yet you fail to see that these scriptures point, me, point you to me. And Lord, we want to be pointed to you this morning. And so, God, as we, as we dig through the word, as we dig into the word, God, we pray that the Holy Spirit would just point us straight to Jesus that we would center in on you, Lord, that we'd focus our lives on you. And Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We just ask your blessing upon it in Jesus' name. Amen. So hey, as we're diving in here, let's take a look with me for a moment at just the last two words of chapter four. It says just, just this simple thing, our justification. Our justification. Those two words set really the agenda and the focus for where Paul is gonna take this discussion now in chapter 5. Now as we've been going through Romans to this point of the book, Roman, in, in Romans, Paul has been convincing us of this fact that the, the only means to which we can be saved uh, is to be justified um, by grace through faith, faith in Jesus Christ. And so we've been talking a lot about what that means, what faith looks like, what it means to be uh, justified. We've said things like, man, it's like getting in the passenger seat with Jesus and buckling up. Say, you're in charge. Let's go. You know, we compared it to like a healthy relationship between a serf and his Lord. You know, who the, the Lord says, I just, I own everything. You have access to it. Come on in and, and take part in that. And and, and Jesus is like that, that good Lord. He owns everything. And, and we become the, just simply the benefactor of his total goodness. We said things like that. And we said that, that faith 
expresses itself in undivided loyalty to Jesus. Uh, undivided loyalty that results in, in new patterns of behavior in our lives. And, and we've said this, that, that faith is not simply, cannot simply be just this intellectual staircase that we ascend where we hold to certain doctrines or ideas or concepts or theology. Living faith in Jesus Christ results in a, a change of direction in your life. Living faith in, in Jesus results in the loyalty of your heart and the behaviors of your life expressing trust in his lordship, expressing trust in King Jesus. And now Paul's going to kind of take this in a little bit of a new direction. It reminds me of, you know, remember when you were a kid when your parents first gave you a key to the house? And it's like, wow, you know, you're old enough to have some responsibility to have access into the, into the family home. It was a privilege and it was a responsibility to come home after school, maybe to unlock the door for your siblings and let others into that home. And, and all of a sudden, your, your perspective of the home changed. It was that, that sense where it was entirely new to and turn to this home now because you could walk in and you could have access to all the benefits of that family home. And, and when you were young, it didn't always result in great decisions, did it? You know, if you think back, some of the things you might have done when mom and dad weren't home and you unlocked the doors, sometimes, you know, you use that access in mature ways and sometimes you use access in immature ways. Yeah. Do stupid things. You know, I remember one time, I've told you guys this story before, but it's a funny story where I was asked to house it. I was just barely 18, you know, a few days. And so I house sat this home for three weeks while this family was away and I was working and they had lots of dishes in this home. And so while I went about staying there and house sitting, I just continued to use every dish and, and as an 18-year-old, I never washed one dish for three weeks while I was there. And there were dishes on the counter and dishes on the island and dishes on the dining room table and dishes on the kitchen table. In fact, there were so many dishes, I thought, I guess I'll order pizza on this final night while they're away and do my laundry and clean this house before they come home. And the World Series was on, and so... I was in my boxers because all my stuff was in the laundry and I was going to start cleaning up and all of a sudden I heard the garage door open. <laughs> and these folks came home a, a day early. You know, I did stupid things with the access that I was given. Sometimes that happens to us, right? But as we, we read about this in chapter 5, Paul is going to just share with us some of the practical benefits of our justification. It's like this. Here's the key to the house, man. You got a key to the house. So what do you have access to um, now? And he's going to just show us some of that. It's like, and it's just like that same picture of like discovering that we have access to the family home. Father, the father has given you a key. Because you've been justified in his son, Jesus. And, uh, justified. Our justification speaks of us being made as though we had never did it. Did, did what? We had never sinned. That's what justification means. It's like we have been made like we've never done anything wrong against the Lord. We're justified by faith in Jesus. Meaning 
We are made acceptable in the sight of God and because of Jesus, we have gained the approval of the Father and the Father says, here's the key, enter in, I'm giving you access to things. So let's check it out, what Paul tells us about. He says this in verse one. Therefore, since you have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, when I left those uh, dishes everywhere, the, the woman of the home said, I said, I'm going to do it, you know. I'll just load the dishwasher. She says, you don't get access to my dishwasher tonight. You got to wash them all by hand. <laughs> Took me two hours. <laughs> but we read here that one of the things that we have been given as the Father has given us a key is this, peace with God. We have been given peace with God. That's the first benefit of being justified by faith in Jesus, that we have peace with God. Now, when God's word speaks about having peace with God, it's, it's talking about something that we have spiritually. Peace with God is a state of soul. You know, think about Adam and Eve in the garden and their relationship with the Lord prior to sin entering in, prior to them partaking in the forbidden fruit. And what they had with the Lord was this. They had peace with God. There was harmony in their relationship with the Lord. They walked with him. They talked with him. They spent time together. And, you know, I, I think about that, that picture of harmony. I always think harmony is a great word to describe a relationship that, that's at peace. You know, you think of a, uh, the worship team. Or sometimes we'll just hear the most beautiful harmonies of singers singing together this combination of notes that are, are, are sung together at the same time and it becomes this pleasing thing to your ears when harmony is properly arranged. And having peace with God is like harmony in your soul. It's like there's harmony in my relationship with the Lord and it comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And spiritual peace is an awesome thing. But when you don't have peace, it's a terrible thing, isn't it? We, we all know that. That when there's a lack of peace, sometimes there's, there's anxiety. There's, there's worry in your conscience. There could be this mistrust of God when you, when you don't have peace. And when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, what you find is peace. The Lord gives you peace. True peace. Isaiah 9.6, you know that it calls Jesus. What, what, what Isaiah called Jesus, he called him the Prince of Peace. That's an awesome title. The Prince of Peace. Speaking of Jesus, Paul said this in Ephesians 2.14, for he himself is our peace. For he himself. For he himself is our peace who has made the two one and he's destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. He is our peace, the prince of peace. And peace with God translates into the peace of God. When you have, when you have peace with God this way in that relationship with God, it, it translates into a reality in your life where there's peace in your heart and in your spirit. Glad for the peace of God. Look what he says in verse two. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Here's the second thing that that key gives us access to, that the Father's given us access to. It's access to grace. Or I would say access to God. 
That's the second result of justification by faith. Is access into grace. Access to God. Access to the unmerited favor of God. The door is open. That's what we discover here. That's what the Lord wants us to know. Because you put your faith in Jesus. I open the door. The door is open. You have access to me. You have access to my unmerited favor. Now. If. If. It was necessary for me to be righteous and for my works to be the key to that access point, the door would often be closed, wouldn't it? It'd be like, I, I've blown it. I messed things up. And so now the door is shut in my face. You ever walked into a door? <laughs> ever walked into a glass door? I've come really close a couple times. I've caught myself, just, you know, and put my back out. I have to go see one of our chiropractors. <laughs> I've watched my kids do it on our, on our deck. You know, it's like head down, carrying a dinner plate, and miss the opening, and right into the glass door. And after you stop laughing, then you, you help them out. It's embarrassing. It hurts. One time uh, when I was a youth pastor, we were playing Capture the Flag in our church in Surrey. And um, we, we had this sanctuary it was about twice the size of this one and that was one team space and then the other the other team had the rest of the church and so it was all the doors were open that was the idea of the game and it was like we we just terrorized the whole church and um i was coming down the hallway as we were playing the game and i came to the side door of the sanctuary and the door was closed one of the teams had closed the door trying to cheat so I flip these double doors open and I yell, hey, don't close the doors. It's open doors. So, you know, I come around again. The doors are closed again. So I flip the doors open. Hey, leave the doors open. Come around again. They're closed again. I flip the doors open. Hey, leave the doors open. The next time I come around, I had the flag in my hand. And I was running hard with kids behind me. And I came around the corner and the doors were closed again. Whammo, man right through them. I went through the doors, blew the pins out of the top of the doors, broke the, all the trim around the doors. Oh man, it was just a disaster. So anyways, classic youth pastor. In the Old Testament, worshipers were kept from the presence of God by what? A veil. We know that there was a curtain between the holy place and the most holy place. Access was cut off. The door was closed, so to speak. You know, only the high priest could go in there. If you entered into there, you were taking your life into your very hands to have access to the presence of God. The high priest, he only went in there with blood to present before the Lord. It's dangerous territory to come in the presence of God. Between the, the court of the Jews and the court of the Gentiles, there were signs posted to warn the Gentiles that should they go past that barrier into the court of the Jews, they were taking their lives into their own hands. They would be responsible for their own death to, to access that. But when Jesus died, when the veil was torn in two and the barrier was removed, again, listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 2.14, for he himself is our peace who has made the two one and destroyed the barrier he destroyed the dividing wall of hostility. And so when we talk about having access to God, when we talk about this key of being 
own, that the Father's given us. We don't, we don't have to sneak into the presence of God, you know, like a, like a thief. We don't have to sneak into the presence of God like some, you know, little creature creeping around. Paul says, no, we stand in this. We stand in grace. We can put our feet firmly on the ground. We can uh, have access to God anytime we want, which is an incredible thought to say, man, you have access to the king of kings. Isn't that awesome? You can come right into the throne room. You can come in to the king and see the king because you have a favorable relationship with the son Jesus. You know, non-Christians don't have that access. They don't have access to the king of kings, to that throne room. People that don't know Jesus don't have that access. You know, they can say lots of prayers, throw up lots of prayers, but the difference between their prayer and the prayer of the believer is this. The believer has access. Access. And if you know Jesus, the holy of holies is wide open. Wide open. And Satan's playbook is, is often this, to come and whisper lies in our ears and to our heart about God. And when he does so, he loves to point at my character and your character and says, you don't think God's going to answer your prayers. You don't think that you have access. Look at your life, you know. Look at the way your week's gone. Look at the way you acted and the things that you did. You don't deserve to come into his presence. You failed him. He doesn't want you to come into his presence. The door is closed to you, Satan would say. Unless you earn your way in. Loves that one. But our access to God is not based on us earning our way in or based on our works or based on our obedience to the law. We've seen this all the way through, through Romans. Our access is based on faith in Jesus Christ. And the Father says, here's the key. Come on in. Come on in anytime. Come before the throne. Even when you've blown it. Isn't that the amazing thing about God? Even when you've blown it and you feel like you failed him, the door isn't closed because of Jesus. Look what he says at the end of verse two. He says this, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That's the third result, the, the third thing that we get as we have access through Jesus. Hope in which we rejoice or hope. There's a little footnote there. It says, you, it's, it could be not rejo translated rejoice, but it could be translated boast. A hope that we boast in, that we rejoice in. And the hope is this, is that God's glory is going to be revealed in your life. You know, I, I don't know what you have going on in your life, but I can tell you confidently this morning this, that if you have placed your faith in Jesus, you can be confident that in whatever you are facing, God is going to work for, his, for your good. He is going to reveal his glory in your life. Take hope. That's what Paul's telling us. We have hope because of the glory of God. God is going to reveal his glory in our lives. You know, as we think about this, these things that Paul's telling us about, he's, he says this, we have peace with God. So that takes care of the past. It, he no longer counts our sins against us. 
we have access to God. That's the present right now. We can just go right straight into his presence. Come to him for help. Come to him anytime we're in need. Anytime we want. And hope of the, the hope of the glory of God takes care of the future. We're, we're going to share in his glory. Paul says we get to rejoice in that. We can boast in that. It, it makes us happy as we consider the future. The glory of God. Past, present, future. You know, theologically, we use the words we use are this. Justification, sanctification, glorification. Past, present, future. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Went and spent a bit of time with Murray this week. I don't see any of the family here, actually. And, you know, it was... He, like, what an incredible blessing. Any of you guys that have gone and seen that guy, you, you know the deal. It's like, same old story that you always hear. You think, well, we'll go over, spend some time, and who gets blessed? Your socks get blessed off, you know, bl- just totally blessed. And what an incredible blessing Murray is, in, sp- in spite of all of the ways that his body is failing him. His body is failing him. In spite of that, you know what Murray is doing? Murray is rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. He, he wanted to talk about heaven. He said, when you preach at my funeral, I want you to preach on heaven. He said, he said in all of his Christian life, he's never been excited about heaven, but he has so much anticipation for heaven, he can't believe it. That's hope in the glory of God. That is not normal. You know that, right? Like that is not a normal human experience. That's because the father has given him something. A key. Access. And Murray has that because, you know, even though his body is failing, the father says, here's the key, Murray. Come on in. I give you access into the hope of glory. Not easy. Not painless. Not without unknowns. And yet, hope is the anchor of his soul. It's awesome. And that's what Paul's telling us here, that hope is that. Hope is an anchor. You know, we live in a, in a world where people are without God. Therefore, they are without hope. They're without an anchor for their lives. All they have is wishful thinking. You know, wishful thinking. It's maybe things will, will turn out. But not those in Jesus. Those in Jesus have an anchor. They have an anchor for their soul. Hope. It's absolute certainty. This isn't wishful thinking. Biblical hope is absolute certainty. Paul says this. You have the hope of glory. This is not a question. You have it. You have it. Christian hope is the is an anchor that will, that will hold you steady when you are going through bad times, when you are going through storms, when, when the wind is battering you and threatening to dash your life upon the rocks. Hope in Jesus is an anchor that holds, isn't it? That's why Paul says what he says next. Check it out, verse three. three I'll just read the first part of it. He says this. Not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Now, this is incredible, actually. 
Like this is, this is the fourth thing that this access that we have this, through this key that the Father has given us. It's this, a change of perspective, I call it. We rejoice in suffering. What? What are you talking about, Paul? I mean, do we find joy in our sufferings? Or can I be happy in the midst of hardship? That, it, that, it, that to me is the definition of real spiritual growth. When I can be happy in the midst of hardship. To have joy and, and to be thankful. E- even in the midst of the toughest things that life throws at, at you. I mean come on let's talk about this. Like in reality although we have peace with God. We realize this. Like the Christian life isn't all. You know flowers and sugar plums and. <laughs> Fairies and candy and it's not easy. It's not easy. Jesus never, never promised us the journey to heaven is going to be on a feather bed. Did he? Glor- glory does not come without suffering. The life of Jesus attests to that. There's, there's, there's a resurrection because there was a cross. There is life because one man died for us and Jesus said, you're going to have to pick up your cross and you're going to have to follow me. So there's no promise of ease here. No promise of ease. You know, the runner puts stress on their body to train themselves to endure. You know, sailors, they go to sea. They, they, they get out there and they get on the water where there could be danger. Or soldiers go into battle. And here's the reality Christians will suffer. In the Christian life, there will be suffering. You will face tribulations. But Paul says this, God will use those things to develop in you perseverance and character and hope. You know, I never ask God for trouble. (laughs) I don't know about you. I don't ask him for trouble, but when I am in trouble and I need God and suffering will do that, right? When he brings suffering, it will cause you to seek God. And because we've been justified, Paul says this, it changes our perspective on suffering. Rather than working against us, what we discover is this, is that we can rejoice because now suffering is working for us. That's that's important. You know, it's like the difference between being the employer or being the employee. When you're the employee, you work for someone else. But when you're the employer, others work for you. My dad, you know, you guys know, lots of you know the story about my dad, like in his workplace accident almost 10 years ago now, where he lost his leg and, and uh, just went through the depression and the physical suffering and the change of lifestyle and all the stuff that was involved with this terrible accident where he almost died. And my dad has told me uh, many times now that for what that accident did with his, for his relationship with the Lord, he says this, that if he had to, he'd do it all over again and he'd not just give up the one leg, he'd give them both up to have what he has with Jesus Christ. How it changes walk with the Lord. To me, that's incredible. 
My dad came to the realization that, that because he is in Jesus, the suffering was working for him. It was working for him, not he for it. You know, many times I, I hear Christians, we have these conversations and we counsel each other and we're like, don't pray that God will give you patience because you'll go to IGA and like the mom with three kids and two grocery carts will end up in front of you and the grocery clerk will be new so they'll be in training, you know, <laughs> my first day here. And, you know, you'll, you'll just like kick yourself that you prayed for, the kids will be screaming too, those three kids. So you'll be kicking yourself that you prayed for patience. Or we say, you know, don't, don't, don't pray for patience because it might happen. You'll go up, you know, and you'll run into ferry traffic every time you go up the, up the hill and you'll follow somebody who's driving 45 all the way to Seashell. And we say, you know, don't pray for patience. But I totally think that that is wrong. I want to correct that this morning. You know, I think whatever the character issue is, even patience, whatever it is, whatever you want God to work on in your life, and to ask him. Ask him. Don't be afraid of his response. I'm like, why are we afraid of his response? Here's the key, my son. You have access. I don't need to be afraid of his response when I ask for anything. He, 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 Jesus said this, if you ask for bread, he won't give you a stone. Jesus is planning on prospering you spiritually, not harming you. He wants to bring about his glory in your life. He has plans to give you a hope in the future. That's what his word says. You can trust his intentions towards, it, towards you. His intentions are always good. God loves you. And God knows this. God knows how much suffering you can take. He knows how much suffering you can take. You know, Spurgeon said this. I love this line. Check this out. He said, a Christian man should be willing to be tried. He should be pleased to let his religion be put to the test. There he says, hammer away if you like. Let me read that to you again. A Christian man should be willing to be tried. He should be, he should be pleased to let his religion be put to the test. There he says, hammer away if you like. You know, think about our church family. Think of some of our friends in this church family. Over the last couple years, man, we have watched religion be put to the test, haven't we? The hammer of suffering just drops, man. Boom, 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 boom. And time and time again, as we've seen that happen, do you know what I've seen come forth? Gold. Every time, man. Neil and Deb, Simpsons, Brubakers. Gold comes forth. Gold. The furnace of suffering. Oh, it's working for you. That's what we find out here. Look at how this verse goes on. Verse 3 again, he says this. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. You know, for the natural man, the man of the flesh, what does suffering produce? It breeds impatience, man. Impatience does not develop character. Impatience leads to hopelessness. 
It's amazing that the children of God in the place of affliction and suffering, that the Lord says this, we're going to see this, Paul's going to tell us this, that God will pour the love of the Holy Spirit into your heart. You know, for the spiritual man, suffering develops perseverance, character, and hope. One virtue upon the other. This is actually called the golden chain of growth and maturity in the scripture. And so know this. For followers of Jesus, suffering is not working against you. It's working for you. That changes everything, doesn't it? Doesn't make it easier. But the Lord has promised, uh, the Lord has promised this, that, that there is nothing that can separate us from his love. And so when you suffer, know and recognize this trial serves to bring me closer to Jesus. It serves to make me more like Jesus. I don't have to like it. <laughs> I'm not saying that you have to like suffering. You don't have to like it. But Job said this. Job 23.10. I think it's going to come up on the screen. But he knows the way I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. That's pretty awesome. Paul takes us a little further and he tells us why Paul said we can rejoice in our suffering. Look at verse 5. Our hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So again, hope is, hope is this, this sense and this confidence that something good is going to, that something desirable is going to come out of a situation. But, but in the Bible, it's even more than that. It's absolute certainty. Absolute certainty that when you are facing some sort of tribulation and trouble as a follower of Jesus, that you can be certain that some good will result. The Lord has promised this, that your hope won't be disappointed. When you hope in him, that is not going to fall to the ground. And so the reason we can be so confident in the Lord and what he has promised is that he has also said this, he's going to complete the work that he has begun in you. And the evidence of his intentions towards you, the proof that he will complete his work in you is his love that he pours into your life, into your hearts by the Holy Spirit, who is from God, the Holy Spirit given to us. And so that's the fifth thing that we see here. This is the, the next point of access, that God's love is poured into our hearts. Have you ever just experienced that in your life where God just begins to just pour out love? And you're like, wow, Lord. I don't know, I didn't do anything. I don't know what happened here, but I just sense your love. I just sense you ministering to me. I just sense you, that you're with me, that you haven't departed from me. And, and the Lord just begins to bring this deep awareness inside of his love. I remember one time I was just out, I was at a conference and our session was over and I was walking across the campus and stewing on some of the things that had been taught and it was just like the Lord just met me while I was walking. He said, oh, just poured, poured in some, some of his love. Sometimes he'll do it at the oddest time, you know. It's like, well, you're not in church. You're not like maybe having your quiet time. You're just, you're working or you're, doing something, and the Lord just lets you know. Pours his love in. 
this deep sense of his presence and fellowship with the Holy Spirit and the love of Jesus. And we, we need that. As I was praying just for our service this morning, I was just thinking, man, Lord, I pray that we, your people, would just have that deep inner sense of your love for us this morning. You pouring it in. And God wants to do that. He desires to do that in us, to, to, to pour it into us and then, you know, have us pour it out for him. And it's interesting here that, that what we see is that our experience of God's love is directly tied to our relationship with the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you saw that there, but it says his love is poured in by the Holy Spirit. And, and to me, that's the, that's the sixth thing in this access from the Father. We, we've received the Holy Spirit. Now the scripture teaches us that every, every Christian has the Holy, Holy Spirit. But Paul tells us in Ephesians uh, chapter 5 that, that not every Christian lives in the fullness of the Spirit. And he says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Romans 8 verse 4 and 5 tell us that, that we're not to live according to our sinful nature. But according to what the Spirit desires and we're to set our minds upon the desires of the Spirit. You know, let me let you in on a little secret of God. God God is not waiting for you to be good before he pours his love and pours the Holy Spirit into your life. He's not waiting for you to be good. You'll never get there. (laughs) The Holy Spirit is received the same way that we're saved. And that is by faith. And God has promised that that those who seek him will find him. And Jesus said, how much more will he give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And so I would say to you, just be asking the Lord all the time. Lord, I need to be filled with the Spirit. Lord, I want to walk in the fullness, fullness of the Spirit. God, I'm asking you, pour your love into my heart by the Holy Spirit. You know, Jesus said this, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The next verse, verse 6, gives us a great description of God's love towards us. Check it out, verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Wait, don't I have to be, you know, good? for God to love me? Don't I have to do all this, these, these religious things? You know, it's so hard for us to escape that thinking. But that is the greatness of God's love. It's a love given to those who are undeserving. It's a love given to those who are powerless in and of themselves. Who are these ungodly, powerless people? It's us right here. This crew hanging out this morning. It was you and me before God revealed his love to us in his son Jesus. And God's ability, what we've been seeing in Romans here is that God's ability to love us stems not from who we are, but from who he is. His reason for loving us is found in himself. Not not in us. We're his creation, but his reason for loving us is found in himself because he is love. God is love. Look at verse 7. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us 
in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, think about it. If Jesus only died for good people, he only, like, if the cross was only for certain people, good people, then, then really we couldn't understand what he, had, what he had done. But the fact is that Jesus didn't die for the good or for the righteous people. Jesus died, Paul says, for the ungodly and for the sinner. And his death, Jesus' death, displayed to us the love of God. You know, the, Jesus said this. He said, greater love has no man than this. And he lay down his life for his friends. Then he lay down his life for his friends. You know, that, that, that verse is like all over monuments. I think probably all over the world, war monuments. And you, you hear it at memorials and different things like that. When you're remembering war times, I think of maybe the idea of, of World War II. And, you know, I've, I've never actually heard this. Have you ever heard of a Canadian who died to save Germans. You know, we honor Canadians who laid down their lives to save Canadians. You know, we honor Canadians who laid down their lives for fellow soldiers and for their country, but I've never heard of anyone laying down their life for their enemy. Except for Jesus. And what kind of love does that take? His death was for his enemies. Look at verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And so if Jesus died for us while we were sinners, while we were his enemies, while we were living in rebellion against him, how much more, Paul says, will he be willing to save us from the wrath, the coming wrath? You know, it's interesting uh, that that statement, much more, or like a variation of that, is used seven times in this whole chapter. And so Paul ke keeps just telling us much more, much more than you're understanding, much more, much more. Look at verse 10, you'll see it again. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more... Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? See those words in, in verse 9 10? There, are, there they are, much more. I just encourage you this week, if you're reading ahead and going through it, you just watch for them there. He's going to use that statement quite a few times. But what are, what's he talking about here? Let's think about this. There I was, an enemy of God, in rebellion against him. And God came, he sent his son, and in his love, he saw that through the death of Jesus, I was reconciled to him. His enemy. Reconciled to him. And so it was death for his enemies. But again, uh, check out with me the end of verse 10. It says this. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved? We Sorry, I'm going to go back a little further. I'm going to read all of verse 10. How about that? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Paul is telling us something here. He says this. 
that Jesus' death was for his enemies. But Jesus' life is for his friends. Do you catch that in there? His death was for his enemies and his life was for his friends. Don't miss out the end of verse 10 there. It's not just the death of Jesus that saves you, Paul is telling us. It's also his life. You were reconciled by his death, but he says, how much more will you be saved by his life? You know, if God would do that while I was an enemy, how much more will he do? If he will reconcile me while I'm his enemy, how much more will he do now that I'm his friend? That's the promise. How much more will he do? How much more will he do now that I've been justified? How much more will God do now that he has established a loving relationship with me and he's reconciled me through his death? It's no wonder that, that he says, in his word, he can do more than I can ask or imagine. I want to read to you Hebrews 9, 28. It's going to come up on the screen here. It says this. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly await for him. See, Hebrews 9, verse 28 is telling us this, that Jesus is coming again. That he's coming again and he is bringing with him salvation. He is going to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. It's interesting thought because what that what's that telling us here is this. Is that, that we're to look forward to being saved. That there is a future aspect to our salvation. You know, when we talk about being saved, we talk about it, you know, out of the past. All the time we talk about it out of the past. Often enough, we don't talk about being saved in the present or in the future. You've been saved. You are being saved. You are going to be saved. It's pretty awesome. You know, the emphasis of the New Testament is actually this. It's always on the future. We always focus on the past when we talk about salvation. You know, there's more about your salvation in the Bible that is future than, it, than is past. We tend to talk about salvation in this past tense and we say this. Oh, you know, when were you saved? And then we draw, oh, we say, we tell some story about our salvation, which is good. And we drop a date and we say, it may, well, you know, it happened. I was young and this happened and that. And it's past tense as if it's all over. And as if it's finished. Man, it's only just begun. That's what Paul wants us to get here. As we discover this accident, he says, oh, the Lord's saying, this has only just begun. Isn't that awesome? We have begun to be saved. You know, from the beginning when my salvation started as a child, the Lord has been continuing to work on me. He has been continuing to save me. His word says that he has given us the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing he is going to finish the work of salvation. Guaranteeing that he is going to bring it to completion. And Paul tells us a Romans here. This is, I, I was looking at this week and I was thinking of this verse Hebrews and actually you'll see in Hebrews 9.28 if it's up there. Something caught my eye. 
I can't see it now. Maybe it wasn't in Hebrews, but I thought I saw those words much more in Hebrews. It might be in the previous verse in 927. I thought, oh, wow. I wonder if that's evidence that Paul wrote Hebrews because often we, we argue about who wrote the book of Hebrews. But when Jesus comes back, what he's telling us is, is this, is that when, when he comes back, we'll be fully, completely saved. The work will be finished. You know, we talk about our body. We're going to see this one as we move on in this text. You know, my, my body, your body, is not saved in the sense that it still bears the marks of the past life. Death is still at work in this body. The redemption of the body is coming. It will be saved when Jesus comes. My body is going to be saved. And so as we think about these things, our, our relationship with the Lord is amazing. It's only just begun. Our salvation is past. It is present. It is future. Let's wrap up with this verse 11 here. It says this. More than that. What? There's more? Yes, Paul. There's more. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. He says this. In Jesus, in Jesus, we have received reconciliation. That's right now. That's, that's present tense. That means we have been brought back into relationship where we were at war with God, where we were living in rebellion against him, living as God's enemy. Jesus came. He made peace. The Prince of Peace. He himself is our peace. He made the two one. He reconciled us to the Father. And all of the before mentioned thoughts and blessings in regards to us being made acceptable and justified by faith and having access to God, we have all of that before mentioned stuff because of one person. His name is Jesus. Because of God's love, he sent his son. And because of God's grace, we have a salvation that takes care of the past, the present, and the future. Jesus died for us. But the great thing is, is that Jesus also lives for us. He lives for us. Seated at the right hand of the Father. Living forever to make intercession for us until he comes again. And he's coming again. He's coming again. What a, what a savior we have. What a great salvation. Let's pray this morning. Would you guys stand with me? I'm going to invite the worship team to come.